going to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. We will read the first six verses together. Exodus 19, let's read verse 1 through 6 in unison. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness... And there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, What I did unto the Egyptians, how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel." Father God, we thank you that uh, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and right living. That the man of God, the person of God, the follower, the lover of God, may be perfect, may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We thank you for it. We pray you use it now to that end. You said that he who prophesies speaks uh, for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Father God, we pray that that would be done now by the power of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to have own a copy of the Bible. And uh, we were watching the More Than Dreams testimony movie with our children who are studying Islam. Well, they're not studying Islam, but they're, they've touched on that in school. And um, find that this brother in Turkey went to the Mecca, to the Hajj, is that what you call that pilgrimage? He went to Mecca because he didn't know what to do. He was an alcoholic and his friends said, hey, go to Saudi Arabia, there's no alcohol there. And, uh, well, that didn't work. Well, he thought he'd get religious, so he went to, to Mecca. And while he's camping in a tent that night, Doing that whole thing that they do down there. I don't know all what it is, but uh, all idolatry basically amounts to demon worship. And um, he's lying in his bed that night, participating in one of the pillars of Islam. Jesus showed up. They said, you belong to me. Get in your car and leave this place right now. He wakes up his buddies. He just said, I just saw Jesus. And they're like, eh, you're crazy, go back to sleep. Goes to sleep. Jesus showed, you belong to me, get in your car and leave this place right now. 
This kept happening to him time and time again. He said to his friend, sorry, I've got to go. And he jumped in his car, left, went home to his wife and kids uh, in, uh, in uh, Istanbul area. And um, But the point was, he said, after two years, I had never met a single Christian and I'd never read the Bible. Two years. Finally, he found a Christian radio show and he wrote to them immediately, asked them to send them a Bible, and as soon as they got it, he devoured it and read it cover to cover. God help us to realize that we have the Word of God. We're going to read, we've got a, we've got a Bible that we can read, uh, that we can study every day to keep the Word of God. And every, and when it, it seems as you've been on this journey for a while, it's like, okay, here we go again, we're going around the Bible again. But it seems like God brings up something new, treasure that we've overlooked. And right here in Exodus 19, Exodus chapter 19 is kind of in the shadow of Exodus chapter 20, because you know what's coming next. It's like, oh, Exodus chapter 20, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, the Ten Commandments, you know. And it's easy to just skim over something and overlook it. But one person has described what is said here in Exodus 19 as the heart of the Pentateuch, the heart of those books of Moses. And as we look at this, we will see why. What we have here prior to the giving of the terms of the covenant is actually an explicit declaration of the intent, of the universal intent of this covenant that God gave, this Mosaic covenant. So therefore, what we see in this here is the the heart of God, the nature of God. And as... As, as we, as we seek to follow Jesus and to, and to know God, <clears throat> as we come into more and more of an experiential knowledge, not a head knowledge, well, he's holy. Yeah, someone told me he was patient the other day. Yeah, patient. Uh, kind of like this, this, this kind of Western Greek cerebral exercise of listing off some attributes. Now I'm talking about an experience of the, the, the nature of God and not just listing attributes, but I said it the other night, experiencing the depth. If you experience the depth of the long-suffering of God, because you know that he's been long-suffering with you, you're left with no other option but to be long-suffering towards other people. Your conscience is just not going to let you away with anything else. That's kind of been my experience. So, so right here in these verses right here that we have read together, we find ourselves living in the shadow of the nature of God. We're no, left with no other option to be more like daddy. And despite how we feel sometimes, despite how uh, we feel like something in our flesh wants to wallow in a place of self-loathing. But in the shadow of who God is, it's just not an option. Just pull up your bootstraps and get out of there. We feel sometimes like we want to insulate ourselves from risk. We want to protect ourselves from being vulnerable in the pain of interpersonal hurt. So-and-so hurt me and I'm not going to let them do it again. That's maybe how we feel. But in the light of this right here, this God who said that he bore them on eagle's wings... That's not going to be an option as we experience him and his nature and living in the light and the shadow of who 
Father God is. These things just become, they just, they're crossed off the list. And that's how he is conforming us to his image. Uh, we may want to justify self-indulgence uh, when, when we know that other people need us. Uh, we, we might want to, we want to feel like we've seen, no, you've crossed the line and I can't take it anymore. Can't, huh? Says who? Is that your opinion? Or is that what the Word of God says about what you can and can't do? Although we may want to feel like that with a lot that's inside of us, living in the shadow of this, of who God is, it just comes to the point where that's not an option anymore. So may the weight of the beauty of who Father God is bear down upon us until we have no option but to agape in all circumstances, regardless of how we feel. God help us. So I see part of that in these these verses here. So let's take a look at these here and see what what God was saying to to Moses. Um, Focusing mainly on uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. He said to them, Ye have seen. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. And that's kind of reflective again of what I just said. Think of what many of us here have seen. Whether it be through the eyes, the physical eyes, or what we've seen. Do I have everybody? I'm looking at eyes. Heads up, everyone. Look at me. Smile and wave. Simone. Hi. (laughs) Anyone else? If God has something for us in his word... You better believe that the devil wants her mind somewhere else. Okay, so I'm watching you. Don't think you can hide. I'm looking at every single one of you. And this word is directed at every single one of you. Me not excluded. I've got to live in the sight of this too. But um, we're not going to be able to escape what we have seen with our eyes and what we've seen in the eyes of our hearts. He said, you've seen what I did. Unto the Egyptians. You saw it, and it was more than sight, wasn't it? Oh, they could smell it. They could smell the frogs rotten in piles. They could hear the wails of families as they mourned their firstborn. They saw the mighty gods of Egypt crumble, the, the, the might and the apparent power of Pharaoh just reduced to nothing to the point where, against his defiant will, after the multiple chastisement of God, he was like, okay, just get out and take whatever you want with you. God said, you've seen it. There's no turning back for you. You've seen it. You've experienced it. You're never going to be able to say anything else in the last day. You're not going to be able to, because you've seen love. You've seen the transforming power of God in other people's lives, right? The love of God, a love that could only have come from God coming down into people's hearts. I saw that when I was 20 years old. I couldn't escape it. He says, you've seen it. Um, You've felt his presence. You've literally felt the bodily presence of God. Some of you have been healed by the power of God. Many of us have had signs. Signs. 
circumstances are so engineered that the mathematical probability just would blow your mind if you could calculate it. And you know, it would take a lot of faith to say that that what just happened wasn't God. That would take more faith than what I've got. I'm going to have to say that was God. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. When he's when he's come to them, he's, this is a, a kind of a prelude to this. He's preparing them for this, offering them this covenant. You've been in powerful means. You've seen the beauty. You've seen the fruit. You've received signs. Can we sit on the fence in light of that? Can we sit on the fence in light of what we've seen, in light of what we have experienced? Word of God says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't put it off. Don't put off obeying. Don't put off responding in light of what you have seen and what you've experienced. It's a weighty responsibility. And you see, the interesting thing with this here is um, he, he brought them. He did all that, right? He delivered them from Egypt. And then... And he took them through the Red Sea, and they've had a little, uh, little, they had a chance to kind of try God out a little bit, seen him in action. And then, he offers them to enter into this covenant. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I'm not sure if I should just lay this part aside, but <laughs> there may be some theological discrepancies there with, with where we're at today in our understanding of, um, giving our heart to Jesus or accepting Jesus. Uh, but what I see there is there, there, there was a gracious work of God uh, and they got they kind of tried God out for a bit. But then it was like, are you ready to come into covenant? Are you ready that this is going to be a, a forever thing? Are you ready that there's going to be no turning back anymore? You've done with the trial period. This is it. Pastor Schultze tells us the story. On that ship, on the English Channel, wanting to throw up his guts off the side of that ship after getting saved the day before and all the trials and hardships. And he made a decision right there and then that he was going to take out the reverse gear. There's no more trial period anymore. Take out the reverse gear. He says, devil, if I have to go to hell, then I'm going to talk about Jesus and worship him until you spit me back out. No matter what happens, come hell or high water, I'm going to live for Jesus, no more reverse gear. And God was drawing them into that covenant. And I'll be controversial with you now, but the raging debate for centuries has been, is it, what is this? Is it eternal security or not? Can you lose your salvation? What happens if it was this? Well, some people can, some people can't. How about that? Is that an alternative? Is that a possible one that's on the table? Maybe. I see some people, and I say that the reverse gear is gone. They've they've entered into an irrevocable covenant with God. They're done playing around. They're done having goosebumps and experiences. And I'm sure if they went out into sin, then there's going to be. But I, I just they're just not going to do that. I just don't have any doubt that so-and-so is going to wake up every single morning and say, I want to worship God and serve God. And as such, yeah, they're eternally secure. But someone else, on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, 
they claim an experience, maybe they have had, I'm not one to judge or say no, but um, as for whether they're going to wake up every day and serve God faithfully, right now, I'm just not sure. They're still kind of on the fence. So, but, so, so they had had experiences, they had had experiences, they, God said, you have seen it. You've had your trial period, now come into covenant uh, with me. So, he's drawing them into that, he says, you've seen what I did into Egyptians, and how I, he says, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. That's beautiful. Now, I'm going to call this sermon on eagles' wings. Even though this whole sermon is not going to be about that part of the text, but it's just so beautiful and poetic, I'm just going to acknowledge it. I bear you on eagles' wings, and I brought you unto myself. <clears throat> what a picture of the goodness of God. You know what we're singing about the, the lion and the lamb? And you have that contrast there, the two sides of God coexisting. What about this right here? You've got, in one chapter... It's going to be no negotiation. It's going to be thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's a good. It's not a good idea. If you feel like it, it's thou shalt not. I'm going to see that in a handful of verses. But the same God that that was austere, laid down the law. There it is. Take it and leave it. Was the God that says, "I bear you on eagles' wings. I bear you on eagles' wings." In Deuteronomy 32, it says something to the effect, it says, like an eagle stirs up its nest and it flutters over its young and spreads out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. That was corporate Israel, Jeshurun, and no foreign gods was with him. What a picture. What a picture this the different facets of the beautiful nature of God, that he, he bore them on, on eagles' wings. They say that eagles will, um, they'll teach their young to fly, and if they, if they don't get it, or if they're failing, they'll whoosh, and let them ride on their wings, their young, until their young get it. What a picture of this tender father heart of God, and he wasn't kidding when he said he'd bear them on angels' wings while they stumbled and were falling out the sky and he caught them again. So they stay up there. How many times did they complain time and time again? We just read it. You know, when they got to Mara, complaining, no water. Oh, you're, Moses like, you're not grumbling at me, you're grumbling at God. Okay, okay, God took care of it, miracle. Get to Elam, woohoo, palm trees, yeah, water, this is great. And then... They're like, oh, we're hungry. What I want that stew, the, the stew pots back there in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Complaining. Basically, God says to him, he bear them on angels' wings. Okay, I can see you're falling out. You're not exactly fine right now, guys. This is not gracious flight I'm looking at. Stay up there, okay? Bear them. Now, I don't know about any other parents in here, but when I hear my kids complaining... <laughs> Last thing I'm thinking of is giving them what they want. That's what he did. He said, okay, you want something nice to eat? There's some quail. Take it. Find out what it's like when you get what you want. And compare it to this manna over here when you're still picking the stuff out of your teeth with your toothpicks. Try a little bit of that instead. 
be graciously he bear them on eagles' wings, carrying them out of the nest of Egypt? You know, they, they cried, they wanted to be, they wanted to fly, they cried, God, deliver us, God, get us out of here. But they needed a little bit of encouragement, didn't they? Especially when we spoke about on Thursday, when they were leaving the Red Sea, and it says, Moses made them, <laughs> he made, come on, let's get out of here, let's walk into the unknown. They needed a little bit of encouragement, it says in Deuteronomy, you know, as an eagle flutters over its young, you know, and they beat their wings, say, come on, get some blood circulating into those wings. Come on, come on, you try it. Look at me, watch me, you try it too, come on. What kind of a God is this we serve? So I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. They thought they were just getting out of Egypt. They thought they were going to the promised land. God's like, well, maybe so, but there's something more primary. I'm bringing you to myself. I don't hang out in Egypt, but I want to hang out with you. So you're going to have to come to me. Wow. That's why I said we see here, this. The, the, we're living in the shadow of this beautiful God. How then ought we to live? Can we have any other option? So he introduces the whole proposal in this manner. And he says, uh, where were we at here? I brought you unto myself. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then, so this is an if then, here's the reward. I'm going to come back to the if at the end, okay, when I conclude this. But if they can keep the terms of the covenant, then here's the reward. Okay, he says the reward is threefold. You shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. That's, that's the first part of the reward. Second part of the reward, the, the, what they receive for keeping the covenant, the terms of this covenant. Uh, second part of the reward is that they shall be a kingdom of priests, and whether you want to put it together or call it number three, whatever, The third part is that they will be a holy nation. It's kind of interesting. I remember Abraham saying to uh, God when he was contending for the covenant, the the Abrahamic covenant, and, you know, God promised him kids and land, right? Kids and land. That was the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham said, God, where's my kids? I'm not seeing the fulfillment of this covenant, God. He says to him, Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. It's me. Uh, Sure, we'll take care of that, but it's me. And I feel in a similar vein right here with the rewards of this covenant here, these three things that we mentioned. um, To to be God's peculiar treasure or his, there was a question last night in the husband's and wife's game, what, um, you know, What's your most prized possession? You know, and, and they separated the husbands and wives and you've got to answer it in the absence of the other party and come back together and see who gets it right, right? But one of the questions was, what's your most prized possession? I was like, whoa, that's a tricky question, you know. What's, what's your most prized possession? Um, <clears throat> but to be uh, 
the prized possession of the God of the universe is his own reward. We're looking for, there's so many blessings that God puts in as a bonus. Yeah, I'll provide for your needs. Yeah, I'll be your healer. Yeah, I'll guide you. Yeah, I'll be with you. Yeah, I'll comfort you. But to be the prized possession of the God of the universe, that's his own reward. The reward of the covenant is like, you enter into this covenant, you fulfill this covenant, you're going to be my pri- I'm going to dote over you. How do you deal with a prized possession? I was thinking of it. Somebody's, somebody's was uh, golf clubs, right? What do you do with a prized possession? Ooh, you dote over them, you polish them, you scrape the dirt out of the grooves on the face there, ooh, keep them nice and safe and... Uh, don't leave them out in that cold garage all winter. Just keep them out in a climate-controlled environment. You, you dote over something that is your prized possession. You know, whether it's your your childhood blankie, you know, you know exactly where it is. And um, to have the God of the universe dote over us, to 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 that, that He knows exactly. You know, don't let your prized possession out of your sight. I can tell you right now where that thing is. It's over here in the storage locker. It's up there. It's up in the bedroom. No, I know where we know where our prized possessions are. To be the prized possession of the God of the universe. He says, um, you shall be a peculiar treasure, prized possession, unto me above all people. For the earth is mine. Above all people. Um, there are, there is a people that belongs to God. And there is a people who belong to the devil. Jesus said it. And we preached to the, to the Jews. He says, you're, you're children of the Father. You're children of the devil. Because if you're children of my Father, you would hear me and you would know my words. You're on the other side. Now, fortunately for us, we don't know who those people are until the last day when God's long-suffering has expired. So we, we're, we're, we're begging and praying and hoping that everybody will be on God's side and that will be manifest in their lives. But there are sites. There are sites. There, there are sheep and there are goats. And when you see the redemption, um, the seven I wills of redemption, Back earlier in Exodus, when God promises what he's about to do before the plagues, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. One of the things that God did in those plagues, he says, I will put a division between you and the children of Egypt. You better believe it. You're going to see a difference between how I deal with my elect and how I deal with those that are on the other side and never will come to the truth. You will see a difference. That's what God says right here. You're going to be my prized possession over and above everyone else. And sometimes it may be kind of veiled. Sometimes you may be kind of like, why am I going through this? What's going on? What's the difference with my life over any anybody else out there? Oh yes, over the course of your life, you will see that you have been dealt with as a child of Almighty God over and above the other people group. There's only two people groups on planet Earth. Two. He says, over and above the other people of, of the earth. And it says, for all the earth is mine. All the earth, how about all the universe? You're going to be my prized possession, this holy people group, God's chosen people over the whole universe. Even though I created the whole universe, as Pastor Schultz would tell us, it says God in Genesis chapter 1 gave about half a sentence to the stars and the galaxies and the universe. 
But the rest of the half of the book of Genesis is about Jacob and his goats. Chapter after chapter after chapter of Jacob and his goats. Half a sentence to the stars in the universe. That's God. The whole created order revolves around his children that he created it for to live out this earthly pilgrimage. It says you, that's its own reward. To be the prized possession of God is the, is the reward of the covenant. Price above all people for the earth is mine. In verse 6 he says, And ye shall be unto me, this is the second one, a kingdom of priests. To be a kingdom of priests is its own reward. It's the prize of the covenant. The privilege of being a priest. A priest is a privileged position. It's a privileged office. And um, I've been blessed in what I've been called to, to still live in um, our American culture where there is a degree of respect offered to ministers. And um, that, that's been a blessing in a way. Other people operate in a, um, an environment of persecution. But for all of us, as priests of God, it's a privileged office. It's his own reward to be a kingdom of priests. See, all of us need one another to stand between us and God. We all need it. And we all have the privilege of being priests to one another. We all have the privilege that when we need the priestly office, in a a more generic and general sense, just grab someone else with the Spirit of God. You've got it. You've got someone else that can stand between you and God. And you're that person to other people. What a privilege, what a reward to be part of a kingdom of priests. It's its own reward. It's own reward. To one another and to the world. A kingdom can you imagine a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests? You know, they talk about America. What do they call that city on a hill? It's been a, a beacon of hope in a way to the world. It was the intent of the founding fathers, a place where people could find refuge, a place where, where just government would be exemplified. And in some respects, you know, America, some may argue, has been a good influence on the world. In other respects, people would seen the excesses and the injustices and the sin and, and, and criticized our nation. Our, our witness has been marred. But to be part of a kingdom whose witness has not been marred in any way, a true kingdom of priests, and even the, the witness of the church as a kingdom of priests, its, its witness has been marred and tainted at times and even slandered and falsely represented. But you know, as we're coming towards these last days and the disparity grows greater and greater, it's his own reward to be part of a kingdom of priests, standing for one another and standing between the world and God and pulling, as we said, as many of them in to this side as possibly can be, as they will allow. It's his own reward to be part of his kingdom of priests. And then lastly, it says... um, kingdom of priests and it says it's his own reward is what I would suggest to you these rewards of the covenant to be it says last of all a holy nation now the word holiness and I've said this before I'll say it again for anyone that wasn't here um, it has been associated with certain denominations or certain movements you know 
um, or certain practices. But if you look at the basic meaning of the word holy, it just means to be to be set apart. In, in common vernacular, we say, oh, you're dedicated. Dedicated to something. Set apart to something. Um, that That's the basic underlying thing with, with holiness. And so holiness uh, necessarily leads to purity because of who we're dedicated to. We're dedicated to a God of purity, a God of beauty. So if you're dedicated to him, naturally that's what you become like. But to be a holy people group, a dedicated people group, a holy ethnos, um, is a reward of its own. To be set apart, to be dedicated, to be consecrated, is a reward of its own. Um, True purity must be founded upon absolute dedication to God. It says in Thessalonians, it talks about, um, may the God, uh, how does it say that? Someone else can recite it. The God of peace sanctify you holy, right? Sanctify, the holy is a W-H holy, not an H-O-L-Y. Sanctify you through and through, set you apart through and through. You may think that you're dedicated to God. But God looks straight down in his x-ray and says, well, I can see all sorts of little pockets over here of dedication to something else other than me. I can see a little pocket over there of dedication to the belly God. It says their God was their belly, their glory was their shame, and they minded earthly things. So God looks down in his x-ray. He says, I see a pocket of undedication right there. I'm going to be dealing with that. I can see a pocket of dedication over here to see, to some relationships over here. I can see it. So, I mean, this God of peace dedicate us holy. <clears throat> but is that true dedication increases to the presence of God alone, then with it comes true purity and true righteousness. See, you can attempt to fabricate right living on something else than a total thorough through and through dedication to God. You can fabricate some right living through self-effort. You know? You can still be dedicated to the belly God over here, or the family God over here, or the sports God over here, and say, well, I've got to go to church today. I better speak sweet and not criticize people behind their backs and stuff like that, and not get angry when my kids bother me, because I know that's not the Christian thing to do. But when it's produced by self-effort, it only results in bad fruit. It wasn't founded upon dedication to God. If it's not founded upon dedication to God, it's self-fabricated. It only leads to self-righteousness, pride, and those things are sin. Those things are dark. Those things are bondage. So it is a reward of its own to be a holy people. To be a dedicated, thoroughly, every single department, every single mentality, every single attitude dedicated just to the prayer. It's, it's, it's the reward of its own. These are the rewards of the covenant. Being pleasing to God is the reward in itself. And these things, these three things that we've mentioned together. Now, before I close, I want to talk about this. It says, God has this tremendous sense of humor. He has got this 7,000 year sense of humor. 
he sees everything in the perspective of everything. He sees everything in the perspective of the end result and what he was planning and what he was trying to do. He said, if you will obey my voice indeed. Did he think they were going to obey his voice? Did he know what he was dealing with? When he, he gave them this, he says, come on into this covenant if you can obey my voice. If you will keep my covenant. Did they keep his covenant? No. Did they obey his voice? No. Did they become his treasure possession, the holy nation? I forget them all. all mixed up. Did they? Did they begin? Did they become those three things? Did they get the reward? No, they never did. This was never fulfilled in Israel. Turn to First Peter, chapter two, verse nine. God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? We're going to do this big, huge mountain thing, and I'm going to offer you this covenant, and you're not going to do it. Notice they thought they were. Oh yeah, God, we'll do that. They signed up for the covenant before he even gave them the terms. That's what that's what's going to happen in the second half of chapter 19. Okay. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Who is... Peter speaking to here. The church, in, in broad terms, the church. Who is the Spirit of God speaking to here? You. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a treasured possession that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Which in time past were not an ethnos. You were not a people group. You got a Scotsman and a German and some American mongrels from all over here, there and everywhere. <clears throat> you weren't a people group, but now you're a people group. You're a people group. And the greatest factor is in the dwelling spirit of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. These things that we hold in common, more than age, more than ethnicity, more than socioeconomic, more than education, that's your people group now. The spirit of God. And this covenant that I invited them to, that they couldn't fulfill, God's like, well, let's just play around with this for about 1500 years. Just to get you ready for what's coming. A covenant that is so mind-blowing, you couldn't get your mind around it now if I told you. So we'll just play this little game for about 1,500 years now. That is a covenant where the terms that you're supposed to fulfill, I'm going to come round and hop over to that side and fulfill them too. Because it says he took the stony heart out of their flesh. And he gave them a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within them. If you just swim downstream a little bit and cooperate with the Holy Spirit that's in you a little bit, then we're heading in the right direction. So, I don't know. I'll give you some overall application or moral of the story. I don't know. It's the Word of God. God's good. He's big. And uh, let's just walk with Him.